0: Welcome to Mike Leasley in Context. This is a delight for me. We did a climate change podcast in 2020. We did a magazine format with three experts, and Calvin was one of them. And that series of uh, podcasts got a tremendous response from our listeners. And with all the things that have changed, I wanted to have Cal back on. And Cal wanted me to also invite David Legates. Just for those of you who don't know Calvin Beister, a quick update on who he is. He's the founder of and national spokesman for the Cornwall Alliance for the Stewardship of Creation, which, by the way, they just dropped a new podcast called Created to Reign, R-E-I-G-N. The first episode came out in April 15th, and uh, I listened to it the other day. You need to listen to it. Cal tells the story of why it's called the Cornwall Alliance, how it began, and it's a pretty fascinating story. About 60-plus theologians, scientists, economists have all come together. I hate the word organically, but that's pretty much how it happened, and one thing led to another. Cal's written over a dozen books, uh, edited 30 and counting, contributed to 35 and counting, thousands of articles he's published. He is a scholar at every level in this area of climate change, and uh, David LaGace now, I guess, is new to Cornwall Alliance. Is that correct, Cal?
1: Well, he's new as an actual staff member, but he's been one of our network scholars since about two thousand. I guess it was, or 2009, and a senior fellow of ours, and so he's just one of the top people with us, but he just came on as Director of Research and Education as a staff member in January.
0: And if I read Dr. LeGate's uh, Vita, we'd burn up the 45 minutes we have allocated. But to give you a couple of high points, Director of Research and Education at the Cornwall Alliance, he's a retired professor from the University of Delaware. And I have to read this. I read this to my wife and she laughed out loud just because it's like, okay, I get it. His expertise lies in hydroclimatology, surface water, hydrology, precipitation, and climate change, spatial analysis, and spatial statistics, and statistical numerical methods and I wrote at the bottom of my notes David when I was in college I had a friend he'd finished his master's and PhD in in entomology and his uh, one of our friends was going off to work in Fiji and working with a bug that was eating mahogany and he was a hydrologist and so he said from an entomologist to a hydrologist don't bug the water (laughs) Bad humor, but I liked it. I still remember it. That's 30 years ago. David has also served in, it take 10 minutes to read this. We'll have all this in the uh, show notes. But you were involved with the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, also known as NOAA. Tell me about your involvement with NOAA.
2: Uh, that was about uh, four, four months uh, to the end of the Trump administration. Uh, actually, they put me in one of the director's positions. It was the Assistant Deputy Secretary of Commerce for Environmental Observation and Prediction, which sounds impressive, but as I've learned in government, the longer the title, the less power you actually have. Uh, Then I was detailed over the White House for nine weeks, of which one was Christmas, one was New Year's, one was Thanksgiving, one was because we were going back to NOAA, and one we were off for an American Meteorological Society. Meetings. i really only was there for four weeks Uh, i've still got myself into trouble but for
0: uh, those who don't know noah if you read any type of weather report or weather app or you watch a hurricane or whatever you'll see in the upper right hand corner of that screen probably an noaa little icon and that's the organization that tells us about weather patterns and hurricanes and many other things and david you're right about titles in the government i used to we lived in dc 12 years and i used to laugh about position descriptions for government jobs were, you know, longer than any other explanation of a job description. And they always ended with other duties as assigned. Dr. Legates has been invited to speak to the Senate on environmental public works on separate occasions, as well as at Pennsylvania House and Senate committee meetings. And in 2002, he won the Boeing Autometric Award for the Best Paper in Image Analysis and Interpretation by the American Society of photo, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, gametry and remote sensing. So if I understand that, when we have an image that we can't always, you know, see great definition, you're the guy that has figured out how to interpret that data.
2: Well, without getting into detail, the paper was involved with, looking at uh, essentially how do we detect different types of crops from satellite records. So you get a number of different responses from uh, different uh, wavelengths of light. And how do you convert that to corn, wheat, soybean, that kind of stuff from the air?
0: All right. I'm going to stop there. We need to get to work here. A lot has changed uh, since we did our last interview with with Cal and climate and First of all, before we get into the reports, you asked me to read Cal, which I read all but one because they started saying the <laughs> same thing. And I learned in research when you see the same theme, you hit the end of research. So let me ask this, where are we with carbon footprint? Where are we with EV? And then we want to get in, in more detail with this because carbon footprint is that's a that subject continues to change of what it even means and how you can mitigate it. And yet when the public hears that, David and Cal, they they think, oh, it's a terrible thing. The, the sky is falling, the climate's gonna collapse.
1: Well, I think carbon footprint is a great thing. Um, carbon dioxide is uh, what some scientists call the elixir of life. Uh, plants absolutely have to have it in order for photosynthesis to happen. And since all the rest of life on Earth depends on plant life, if we didn't have CO2, we wouldn't have life. Uh, biological life anyway, spiritual life. I guess angels don't need CO2, but we do. And uh, prior to the Industrial Revolution, the uh, level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, uh, concentration of it, had fallen to the point where photosynthesis was not happening quite so well. Uh, If it had gone down about another hundred parts per million, photosynthesis would have stopped and all life would have stopped. Uh, Instead, with the Industrial Revolution, we began burning Uh, coal, and then later on oil, and later on natural gas, we started restoring CO2 levels to what they had been uh, uh, previous, uh, long previous, and the result is that we've got got more plant growth all over the world. We've had, David would probably remember the the proper percentage, but increase in leaf cover around the world uh, because of added CO2 in the atmosphere. Craig Idso with the Center for the Study of Carbon Dioxide and Global Change has estimated that from 1960 to 2012, we had an extra $3.2 trillion worth of crops around the world just because of the CO2 that we had added. And he projected that if we continued adding CO2 at the rate the UN uh, predicted, uh, we would add another $9.6 trillion worth of extra crop yield
0: okay let me interrupt you why why is this bad why is the carbon oh, it's footprint not bad, bad?
1: <laughs> it's a very good thing
0: but why do we hear about this constantly about carbon footprint and you're you know when you take a plane i, I watched one of the videos embedded in one of these articles you sent me and the guy took a plane trip and it negated his carbon contribution it was all in the tank now because he flew on a plane
1: yeah well i think david's gonna explain that for you really well from the scientific perspective but he's also going to tell you It's never been about science.
2: Yeah, I mean, particularly with respect to carbon dioxide, I mean, if greenhouse producers know very well that carbon dioxide is the elixir of life. If you go into a commercial greenhouse, often you'll see little boxes in the corner that actually produce carbon dioxide and put it in the atmosphere. And that's because plants grow better with more carbon dioxide. So if you double, triple, quadruple the amount of carbon dioxide over what it is outside, plants grow faster. And the neat thing about it is they are more water efficient. So the idea is they need less water. Their stomates don't need to open as wide. So therefore, they retain more water. And so they're simply more water efficient. And what we've seen from statistically looking at satellite records of Plant growth is there are large areas where we've seen deforestation, but by and large, most of the world is actually seeing a greening up associated with the increased carbon dioxide that we've seen over time. As Cal said, carbon dioxide, in my view, is not the problem and it never was the problem. The issue has been how do we get wealth redistribution? And that's done by coming up with a something we can restrict and that's where it comes down to carbon dioxide.
0: So when I read the IPCC report that, Cal, you encouraged me to take a look at, they talk about the reforestation and the need for this, but they say this really is a small contribution to the larger climate change problem. But I'm here you saying that's not true.
1: Right. CO2 does contribute to the greenhouse effect. It does, you know, the more CO2 in the atmosphere... Other things being equal, the warmer the lower atmosphere is going to be, the cooler the upper atmosphere is going to be, by the way, because some of that heat stays down low. But it's a pretty minor contributor, uh, partly because water vapor, which is by far and away the most important greenhouse gas, absorbs a lot of the radiation, infrared radiation, in the same bandwidths that CO2 does. And so a lot of what CO2 could absorb it doesn't because water vapor already absorbed it so in reality co2's contribution to warming is relatively small water vapor contributes a lot more and then there are a variety of other things like the sun you know that big shiny thing up in the sky there (laughs) Uh, (laughs) the, the variations in solar energy output and in solar magnetic wind Cause variations in energy input to the Earth's atmosphere, as well as in the formation of clouds. And clouds, in turn, have their own effect. Cloud cover is probably a much bigger contributor to global temperature than CO2. Mm. And then there are various ocean cycles that also affect these things. There's a, a, a sort of a back and forth system between the two poles in terms of how much ice they have and therefore how much energy they reflect back out into space. <laughs> so all, all right, of these I'm things gonna go you. together.
0: I'm going to stop you because you have a lot I want to ask you about. I want to help the person That they read the IPCC, they watch this gentleman's video. What's his name? Gutierrez. And you know the sky is falling, baby. I mean, Chicken Little is here. And before we jump into that, EV has changed. When the last time we did this podcast, Dr. James Tour from Rice University gave me an incredible education about the mining of so-called you know rare minerals and like lithium in particular, the fossil fuel required to mine them, ship them package them, relabel them, redeploy them, and put them into an EV. And he said at that point our break-even was 30,000 miles before we recouped the so-called carbon footprint offset with the use of fossil fuel. And then he said now you got to dispose of that battery. And by the time you hit that cycle, there's just a no-end game. Why are we still here? I mean, Ford just announced the F-150 is going to be electric and they have 200000 in orders. Is this strictly monetary? Is it PR? Do we really think that EV is somehow better than a fossil fuel vehicle? Because it takes fossil fuels to do everything I just articulated before that Ford truck comes off the plant.
2: Well, you're using common sense, and that's where the problem comes in. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the goal, of course, is to cut back on carbon dioxide which in that sense means that the developed nations of the world have to pay for their excesses and the under and undeveloped nations of the world, therefore, in theory, will benefit from that. However, it's usually the UN that benefits from it. I mean, as Gutierrez said, it's, this is not really about carbon dioxide. It's about changing the economic way of life. And if you look at the plot of carbon dioxide over time since, say, uh, 1960, you'll see that that curve has no inflections anywhere along it except possibly due to COVID. And therefore, we've been having 30 years of discussions, 30 years of IPCC reports, 30 years of you've got four to eight years to respond, and it's had virtually no impact globally. And again, the reason is that we are responsible for making all the changes, but China, for example, is putting in up to uh, one coal plant every seven, eight days. So they're moving far and away into coal, whereas here in Delaware, for example, we're getting rid of our last coal power plant and trying to put up solar in place of agriculture.
0: So again, for folks that maybe haven't stayed up with this discussion or, or just hearing it the first time, the idea of, you know, clean fuel and clean fossil fuel is a bit of a red herring because everything we've just discussed takes fossil fuel to create and build. And so if, if we say at the front end, okay, there's no such thing as, you know, AOC wants a, wants green buildings, well, to have green buildings, you've got to have more fossil fuel than imagined. And then you have two or actually three countries, right? China and India are the worst in this whole equation the United States is last I read, correct me, three percent of the problem? Is that accurate?
1: Well if you define CO two emissions as a problem, that's accurate. Uh, and if, you just said if you not define a them as <laughs> if you define them as wonderful stuff, then <laughs> we instead make we're up. only three percent of the solution. <laughs> <laughs> you know, seriously, this this whole thing is an exercise in uh, new think and uh, you know double talk. It's okay. Wait, when, when we've Ford... all been trained to think of CO two emissions as a bad thing, and so then we look at how low the U S. emissions are and we celebrate. And the opposite is what we really ought to be doing. When you're sitting <laughs> because the it's board... not about science. Okay. It's not about... When you're the
0: board of directors of Ford, the only thing they're thinking about is the bottom line. And they're sitting there going, the F-150 is the most popular vehicle in America. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's make an EV version of it. And I got to I'm just
1: going to predict for you, that's not going to be the most popular version of the F-150. Oh, I'm I mean, with
0: you. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> but think about what? Is it billions they have invested in R&D to put that thing on a, on an assembly line? Now, I got to pull a 220 in my house because a 110 won't do it. Mm-hmm. What's my energy cost going to be at home? Oh, by the way, that's coal or petrol of some kind, uh, a fossil fuel that heats my home, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm plugging in
1: a fossil fuel pipe. And when you're driving that F-150 around, you better not use either the heater or the air conditioner. (laughs) Uh, And you better not uh, have to fire it up in super cold weather or in super hot weather, because both of those are problematic to the battery. And then besides that, you're actually going to lose some carrying capacity because the battery for the doggone thing is going to be enormous. And it's going to weigh probably about 1500 pounds all by itself, just the battery. So, so, (laughs) you know, have fun with your little toy there, but it's not going to serve you as a workhorse pickup truck the way the classic f-150 has done for so many people
2: when when and you couple, can't we, park it and you can't park it in your garage because it's likely to catch on fire because we've had issues with that as well so it's it's yeah. a nightmare you know, I,
0: I read that and i agree and we do hear the one-offs about you know a tesla catching on fire but it's almost like to me that's a statistic that you know you're most accidents happen within six miles of home. Well, of course, because I drive within six miles of home. But when you look at the number of gas powered vehicles that, you know, whatever, I mean, anyway, I appreciate the data, but it seems a little bit. Anyway, let's get back to this report. This IPCC report, the trends in it go over and over again with this 1.5 degree change. What would happen if we had a three, this is Fahrenheit, three degree change in our atmosphere.
1: I'm gonna give you a quick response the way uh, Richard Lindzen, the Emeritus Professor of Atmospheric Physics at uh, MIT. He says, nothing, <laughs> I mean, that's it. And then he explains it's because no place in the world experiences global average temperature. The only temperatures that are significant are local temperatures. And David, take it from there, explain why 1.5 to three degrees Celsius in change in global average temperature uh, upward are not gonna be a problem.
2: Well, if we change, I mean, if we change the temperature in the studio, about 1.5 degrees, I doubt seriously you recognize that temperature change. The other thing is we go through that fluctuation on a daily basis, looking at nightly lows and daily highs, that temperature range is far greater than one and a half degrees Celsius for most of the planet. So as a result, a slight change in the mean value is not going to be much of an effect. And as I said, rising temperatures are better for not only plants, but human civilizations have generally done better under warmer conditions. And so as a result, you might see a benefit as opposed to a detriment.
0: In this IPCC report, you see these you know bullets, and I'm sure they're from the 60-some page report. I did not read the 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 entire report. Coal must effectively be phased out. Methane emissions must be reduced by a third. Growing forest and preserving soils will be necessary, but tree planting cannot do enough to compensate. Investment in the shift to a low carbon world is about six times lower than it needs to be. All sectors of the global economy, and this is to your point, David, from energy and transport to buildings, food must change dramatically and rapidly. New technologies, including hydrogen fuel, and carbon capture storage, will be needed. And you're telling me this is hot air, pun intended.
2: Yeah. I mean we had two scientists just came out and sent a letter to the CEOs of most of the major corporations uh, in the United States saying, please push the government to pass $555 billion spending for climate change. Well, where's that money going to go? And what's it going to do? Don't really ask that question. Just put the money. It's going to be great. It just, in many cases, goes back in the coffers of the people that are asking for more money. And we, like we said, we've seen nothing from the UN in terms of the IPCC, in terms of changing carbon dioxide, which they argue is what their whole game is about. And I think this is about spending as much money as humanly possible, and it doesn't matter for
1: what. Let me give you a quote that shows that this is not just David Legate's blowing off steam here. A former co-chair of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Otmar Edenhofer, a German economist, said back in 2010, the Climate Summit in Cancun at the end of the month, and he was talking just before that summit, is not a climate conference, but one of the largest economic conferences since the Second World War. First of all, Developed countries have basically expropriated the atmosphere of the world community, which is a kind of a strange thing to say. <laughs> Granted that, you know, that uh, crop yields all over the world had more than quintupled between World War II and the present; that all kinds of wonderful improvements in life expectancy and so on had gone on. But let's continue with with Edenhofer's statement. One must say clearly that we redistribute de facto the world's wealth by climate policy. Obviously, the owners of coal and oil will not be enthusiastic about this. One has to free oneself from the illusion that international climate policy is environmental policy. This has almost nothing to do with environmental policy anymore. Close quote.
0: So from the horse's mouth. So when the IPCC finished its report, there was this little um, drama that they delayed release by hours. Like there was some mm-hmm. kind of shuttle diplomacy going. What the final document was going to be.
1: I That's routine every, one, every time. <laughs> yep. They do it every time. It's all about drama rhetoric.
0: <laughs> well, you t- so you think it was planned? You don't think it was guys saying, "Wait a minute, we can't say this."
1: No, you know? I think it, I think it's planned to happen that way okay. every single time. Every time. You can't you can't escape the notion that it's planned when it happens at every single climate <laughs> summit. It has never failed.
0: Okay. Talk a little bit about solar and wind, because I have some young people that I know, and they're like, oh, we could, with solar and wind, I, I remember, and I think, Cal, you may not remember, but I used this story when we interviewed you last time. I have a friend that acquired a building to lease, and it had solar panels on the roof, Mm-hmm. And I asked him about them and he took me up into this room with these three-ring binders that were on a separate shelf, and they were about four feet deep. And he said, "That's what I have to keep up with with the government, to show them I'm maintaining these panels to their specifications." And he goes, "I'm just leasing the building," and he goes, "Half the panels are are failed. The company that manufactured them is out of business. Nobody can repair them. They don't work." But I have to document all this because they apparently got some money from the government when, you know to, to put those panels in. Have solar panels and or wind farms changed that much that they're actually working and producing energy?
1: Well, yeah, they produce energy. They just produce a whole lot less of it per dollar spent in the process than do coal and natural gas. Well, wait, the report says they're now economically
0: viable. (laughs)
1: Uh, uh, Ah, this this is a very (laughs) tricky thing here. Very tricky. They will point to what is called levelized cost of electricity, LCOE. And the accounting for this is done in a very interesting way. For coal-fired or natural gas-fired generating plants... You have to include in the cost of running that plant, the cost of decommissioning it and you know, taking it apart and getting rid of all its pieces and disposing of them properly with environmental impact and everything else, all of that has to be included in the cost. With wind and solar, decommissioning is not part of what's counted in the LCOE. Not only that, but with wind and solar. You have to have coal or natural gas or nuclear plants running in reserve in the background to keep the electricity going when the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing. And for the sun not shining, that's a minimum of 50% of the time. And actually, you can't really generate much electricity for more than about the four middle hours of the day when it's not cloudy. So for solar panels, you get an average of about 15% of so-called nameplate capacity, electricity generation. For wind, you, you know, they've got that in some places up around 30%, but not much more than that. But here's the other deal. They don't have to include in LCOE the cost of running the backup power. And so, uh, yeah, LCOE, the way it's accounted for, Wind is slightly less expensive now than combined cycle natural gas. But if you account for it properly, it turns out it's still much more expensive. And it's going to continue to be that for physics reasons.
0: Let me go back to the, you you talked about my language, decommissioning these plants. I've read the same about the the turbines on these uh, wind farms. They're incredibly difficult to deal with. And you think about it, it's just a big blade. Uh, But I can't remember if it was you or James Tour that said getting rid of those is like a toxic nightmare.
1: It is, yeah. There's a lot of toxic chemicals, not just in the blades, but also in the lacelles, the the big housing for the actual turbine itself. The blades aren't the turbine. Um, All kinds of toxic metals and toxic chemicals in those things. And there simply is no good way to dispose of those. They're going to increase solid waste landfill in ways that just go beyond the imagination. And again, the proponents are just not taking this seriously into account. But the big deal here is this, simply cost. You know, the places that have done the most with wind and solar are the places that have the highest electricity rates in the world. Germany, electricity is roughly three times as expensive as for the U.S. as a whole. California, it's more than double what it is average for the U.S. Uh, and, And this hurts people. And that's even with wind and solar just providing a very small percentage. The costs go up, the higher the percentage of the electricity fed into the system from wind and solar because you need more backup. The more you depend on wind or solar for your grid, the more backup you need, so the costs rise exponentially.
0: Help me understand this CO2. The One of the articles talked about this ORCA project, and it, it's pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and cleaning it, and then you have to store it. What in the world is this about?
2: Well, this is one of those plans of carbon sequestration. The idea is now that carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere, can we come up with a way of pulling it out of the atmosphere and putting it somewhere, either deep ocean, deep in the ground, uh, storing it somehow so that it's not in the atmosphere and acting as a greenhouse gas. It's uh, an engineering attempt. Uh, I think it's more pie in the sky than, than active. I mean, given the amount of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere, uh, the amount that you could actually pull out uh, on a large scale basis is just ways of spending money at this point to figure out uh, new technology but i don't think it'll ever be a major issue in trying to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere
0: somebody's either gullible enough or motivated to invest in these plants what out of curiosity what's the compound look like when they allegedly scrub this out of the air and then you said deep sea or you know back to uh calvin's point where are you going to put it? a landfill what's the substance going to be in
2: 55 gallon drums no it essentially comes out as carbon dioxide gas, it's a then gas. liquefied okay that if you if you pumped it deep into the ocean uh, the ocean will absorb carbon dioxide and the o- deep ocean water doesn't return to the atmosphere connection for an awful long time and that's going to be real so-
0: inexpensive to get it down there and it's not going to require any fossil fuel to get it down there right
2: well, that's why we need all that $555 billion spent immediately, because uh, this is where we'll go for it.
1: Yeah. And those who talk about sequestering CO2 underground have a little bit of thinking to do about, because CO2, though it's slightly heavier than the average atmosphere, it's much lighter than dirt. It's
0: going to find a way.
1: And yeah, it's going to find a way up. Um, And, you know, you you put it somewhere that has any tectonic activity, uh, earthquake sort of activity. Lake Nyos in uh, Cameroon in Africa uh, was affected by a very, very minor earthquake, but it had a whole lot of carbon dioxide stored down at the bottom of the lake uh, for a variety of different reasons. When this happened back in 1986, The lake burped, so to speak. It burped CO2 into the air. That CO2 robbed 1,746 people and thousands of livestock of oxygen, and they died. died. Now, this is not exactly a tremendously safe thing.
0: So we wouldn't want to, like, store it along the San Andres Fault strategically place it every hundred yards or something
1: not a great idea
0: let me uh, in, in the time remaining with 55 questions i have i'm, I'm going <laughs> to change this there are several articles on cornwall alliance one on the great barrier reef devastated by man-made warming another one is about the utter inadequacy of solar power to a modern economy and both these are short articles, easy to read, and I'd love for our, our friends to read them. But I did want to talk to you. I think, Cal, you wrote this one on the reef, this mass bleaching they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you comment to NPR, CNN, The Guardian, and many others record this in great detail. You make a comment. We see what we look for and look for what we wish to find. Are you really that cynical? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you know, <laughs> if you're told to look for elephants, you won't notice giraffes. And uh, so so that's, that's essentially what happens. The situation, the uh, Great Barrier Reef is just one of those examples of uh, folks thinking, well, if we add CO2 to the atmosphere, CO2 forms acid in the ocean, and that eats away at reefs so obviously this is going to have to happen and so they've made these claims over and over again over the past oh 20 years plus and the fact is you go out and you look at situations where reefs have bleached and they recover usually within a a couple of weeks or so sometimes a little bit longer than that but it's actually a natural process that happens as both ph changes in the water but also temperature changes and various other things, uh, seasonal things. The fact is the Great Barrier Reef has been around for thousands and thousands of years, and it has survived much warmer temperatures with much higher CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere, and it has survived much lower temperatures with much lower concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere, and vice versa. There's just simply no reason to think this is devastating to the Great Barrier Reef. And so in that article at cornwallalliance.org yeah. on the blog, in that article, I, I quote uh, scientists who've actually gone and spent time looking at the reef itself instead of just at computer models of how they think uh, changes in in uh, pH and temperature are going to affect the reef. And they found out. Yeah, it's in very, very good shape. It's not dying. It's not even threatened. Uh, uh, We see what we look for and look for what we wish to find. So uh, the doomsayers can always find spots where there is bleaching going on. But that's because it's a natural process.
0: Dr. Legates, when we began this conversation, you tossed out the redistribution of wealth right out of the chute. And I wanted to come back on that because – we step back on this entire discussion slash debate from whether it's Al Gore or the most recent IPCC, you really think that's
2: the heart of it? Yeah, and I think they tipped their hand. As Cal responded with a vote from Edenhofer, uh, I can give you a number of other quotes. I mean, the chief former chief of staff for AOC said, you think the Green New Deal is really about uh, energy and environment? No, it's about a how do we change the economy thing. Christiana Figueres, who ran the uh, uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, essentially said, this is a way in which we're going to change the economy of the world. Uh, they make no bones about it. It's economy, e- economic changes, and they're changing the economy. The climate is just simply the vehicle by which we can redistribute the wealth. We can change the global economy. And you listen to what they say, and that's exactly what they tell you. When we saw the... Uh
0: during COVID, the, the payments the government sent out to individuals, I was struck by not only the entitlement, but the aftershock of that. People didn't want to go back to work. And there are a lot of contributing factors, but some of it sounds similar in that if we throw money at something, albeit altruistic, albeit as a you know, CDC mandate, maybe we shouldn't you know, have close contact, there's never any outcome measure. There's never any report that comes back and said, we spent X per capita, and this was the net result. It just is shuffled away. So when you make the sweeping comment about redistribution of wealth, I mean, I agree with you, but I'm I'm a little concerned for our listeners to say, and I don't even like the word respond to this anymore, how do you live in a culture where this indoctrination of the free market economy is vilified, yet we must bail out China and India and their, you know, and their pollution – we, we have to fix the, the environment because CO2. And, and so people, young people especially, and Cal has taken me to task on this last time about, uh, you know, it's not that I'm impatient with young people. I fear the indoctrination. They're not hearing guys like the Cornwall Alliance talk to them. And so they're accepting all this without any back and forth because, after all, all these scientists tell us. So I'm speaking in, you know, a lot of random concepts here, but my point, I guess I'm I'm trying to ask you experts and you, you smart guys is how do we educate without sounding like crazies? How do we educate to say timeout redistribution of wealth is not going to solve any problem more than likely it's going to create more problems for the free market economy, which is what we saw in the COVID period. Whether you should stay home or not, setting aside the redistribution of wealth from the government writing checks it did not have to people who were not working had no positive effect.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I actually think, Michael, that a major part of the responsibility lies with those of us who are not young in two ways. One, we have to be giving the information necessary to those who are young. But two, we have to be patient, because we have to remember, you know, we once were young ourselves, and learning takes time. Learning takes a lot of time. And so, you know, if you haven't lived, for example, through the 1930s, which I haven't, right? But if you didn't live through the 1930s, which were the warmest decade of the 20th century for North America, and particularly for the 48 continental United States, you don't have direct memory, personal memory of that kind of warmth of the incredible number of high temperature records set then that have not been exceeded since then. And so if you can't learn from memory, you have to learn from history, but it takes a lot of effort to learn from history. You have to actually read, you have to go to good sources. And so our task as people who are older is to pass on. I mean, this is the, the idea of tradition is central to a conservative way of thinking. And I'm a conservative, not in the sense of just a pure libertarian. I'm a conservative who thinks we have valuable things to traduce, to pass on from one generation to the next. And we just have a lot of hard work to do. But you know what? People do age unless they die. And as they age, they do learn. So, you know, as Winston Churchill put it, you know, if if you're not a liberal when you're in your 20s, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative when you're in your 40s, it's because you have no brain. (laughs) But it takes time for that learning to happen. And we just have a hard job to do. You
0: know, I I listened to AOC and I, I would love to have known her economics professors what she was taught when she was at university and where that thinking began because it's evident she doesn't know history. She doesn't know what she's speaking about. And the block and bridge, the way she's interviewed is is interesting. But that's a young woman in a position of political influence who is telling a lot of people information that CO2 is bad, sustainability is our new God, redistribution of wealth is our responsibility. And I, I sit there and go, Let's just take the last one back to redistribution of wealth. How long can you redistribute it? The free market economy will stop at some point if you continue writing checks once you dismantle the way people make money.
1: And it's not just a pragmatic problem. It's also a moral problem. Yeah, For the simple reason that the eighth commandment (laughs) does not say you shall not steal unless you are the government. (laughs) Redistribution of wealth is government run theft. And that's all there is to it. And we have to get back to the point where people are willing to say, the mere fact that the government does it, doesn't justify it. But unfortunately, in our day, so many people have turned away from the real God, that they're substituting all sorts of idols in its place. And I think we have idols of science, idols of technology, idols of wealth, and idols of government, the state has become the God of so many people. This is why the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the reconciliation of sinners like me to the holy God through the atoning death of Christ and his resurrection from the dead is the most important task the church of Jesus Christ has. Proclaiming the gospel, bringing people to a a living faith in Jesus Christ so that they are reconciled to God, that's the most important thing we can do. And as that happens, then as people spend time in the scriptures, they begin to learn to think the way God thinks, to test all things, hold fast what is good, as Paul put in First Thessalonians 5.21. And when that happens, they start to see through a lot of the lies in the world around us.
0: Well, you said it better than I could, and it's a great place to land uh, our conversation. You know, apart from the gospel of Christ, I have no hope. You know, and um, yeah. you, you, when you listed off all the gods, the one I would add is altruism. There's this nomenclature today, and this you know whether it's social justice or universal income or socialized whatever you want to you know call it. There's this altruism deep in the side. A person says, "Yeah, we should do that." But it's never at a cost to them individually or from a geopolitical what that does down the line. David, let me leave the the last word with you. Um, Thinking about, you know, a lot of things I have not organized well, forgive me, but you guys are the experts. What would you say to a person, you know, hearing us talk about climate change? What do they need to know? How do they navigate these conversations? What's important, you know, from your vantage at the end of the day?
2: I think it all bases on truth. I mean, part of the idea is the media, the narrative that everybody constantly hears is, for example, more tornadoes, more hurricanes, more devastation. And then you look at the records and you see that's not the case. That's not the way it goes. And uh, to some extent, you've got to do your own work. My fear is that we wind up in a situation that the Soviet Union found itself in. If you're familiar with the case of Trofim Lysenko, who was a Soviet peasant in the 1930s, came up with the idea that if you take a seed and you put the seed in a freezer and you freeze it and then eventually plant it in the ground, the trees that grow will actually be cold resilient. It's essentially an environmental determinism argument. And the issue was anybody following Mendel's genetics had problems. Uh, You were ostracized you were forced out of the government, you were forced out of the country, or in some cases, you were killed, murdered. And it wasn't until 1964 that finally they said, you know, we've got to stop this. We've got to go back. This is the correct way of doing things. We need to look back into genetics because it's been hurting agriculture now for 30, 40 years. I hope it doesn't take us that long to realize that that's the problem and that a whole cohort of children don't pass away uh, until the next group come along and say yeah I don't know what they could have been thinking we need to do this differently I'm generally a pessimist but I'm not a fatalist and I think uh, God will God will lead us out of it but it may be a long road and I hope we won't fight him on this.
1: And I'm generally an optimist, but also not a fatalist. Uh, I, I think it takes a lot of hard work on our part. Michael, you mentioned social justice. I'd just like to make an offer to all of your listeners. We would be glad, the Cornwall Alliance would be glad to send a free copy of my short book, Social Justice versus Biblical Justice, How Good Intentions Undermine Justice and Gospel, as our way of saying thank you when anyone makes a gift of any size to the cornwall alliance doesn't matter how small or how large of course we'd love for it to be large but uh, we are a nonprofit profit 501 501c3 organization tax exempt and so the full value of their gift will be tax deductible all they need to do is to go to cornwallalliance.org click on the donate button and as they fill out the donation form when they come to the comments field just write in social justice and we'll know to send them a free copy of this short book.
0: And that's a lot of copy that Cal just said. So we'll put that in the show notes in the bottom with a link Uh, explaining all that at the end of the podcast. Gentlemen, I could talk to you literally all afternoon. Please come back, and and please, let's have continuing conversations. I think God's using in context in some pretty exciting ways, and we'd love to continue to cross-pollinate the work you're doing with what we're trying to do, getting people to think biblically in a world that's uh, very different in its motivations. Dr. Calvin Beisner, Dr. David LeGage, thank you so much. And again, in the show notes, all the information about the Cornwall Alliance, and about About these two bright gentlemen. Thanks for your time. God bless you and peace.
1: God bless you you too. Thanks again. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at MichaelInContext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour. Mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.